morning. So I'm Mr. Crunch, Colonel Crunch, whatever you want to call me, uh, Rob, Reno. Uh, some of you met my wife, Amy. My daughter, Lissy, was sleepless in Scotland. Are any of you here with Lissy? Okay, that's awesome. And how many of you know Lainey from High Tide? Okay, Millie? High Tide? Ray, Lakeside? Rush, Lakeside? All right. I love it. So just thank you uh, for your ministry to my family uh, this week. And for those of you that have been with us in past years, we really, really appreciate it. Where are my Cove Kids people? All right. Now, you guys are doing an awesome job. Uh, Every now and then, right, the the drop-off is a little bit challenging for some of those those small ones. But... um, Anybody, uh, any of you Cove Kidsers also do kids ministry at your home church? Volunteering and nursery and stuff like that? Okay. Well, let's just say we had a uh, uh, hypothetical church where kids ministry is out of control, right? Kids behavior is just nuts. It is off the wall. So the pastor stands up on Sunday morning and says, all right, as you all know, we've been having some major problems in our uh Puggles class or whatever we call it, and uh, we have decided that we are going to now ask the um, uh, nursery and children's ministry volunteers to begin spanking the children who are being disobedient. What would be your response to the said new policy from the pastor? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I got a thumbs up over here. Uh, I think that's a joke. He's pretty, I know, pretty enthusiastic about that. Um, I think most of you were, were no, you know, I don't, I don't feel quite good about that. I really don't think that the volunteers should be spanking the children. Now, tell me why, for those that, not the thumbs up guy. Okay, what's your name? Dutch. Dutch. Dutch Blitz. All right, strike one for you, Dutch. Um, <laughs> those of you who are like, yeah, I don't think that's such a good idea. Why not? Well, uh, but they need to be disciplined. Play this out with me. But they need to be disciplined not your job well parents aren't there so it's got to be somebody's job not to discipline where did you get the idea that that nursery workers shouldn't discipline kids but parents should (laughs) from cove kids good all right well the the camp down the road though says that it's fine so who's how are we going to decide who's right okay well maybe the government will tell us right who should discipline the kids and how Keep going. Work with me. Why are you saying that nursery workers shouldn't be spanking kids? Why are you saying, well, look, if anybody's going to spank them, it's really the parents, if, that, if that's what they choose to do. Only parents have that authority. Where'd you get that idea? Bear with. All right. Pick. If you don't like spanking, pick whichever method you want. It's that span- this is not an illustration about spanking. Keep going with me. All right. Why, why did you tell me that you think parents should be the ones disciplining their kids, not the nursery workers? Ding, 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 ding. The Bible says, fill in the blank, right? The Bible says that parents are the primary trainers of their children, and any time you'd have any kind of discipline in the Bible, like spanking or something like that, right, it would be parents that would be doing it, not, you know, random volunteers in the community. Okay. It has been, let me tell you where we're going with this. It's been the focus of my 30 years of ministry 
um, working with the next generation, helping the next generation keep the faith. Okay, if there's been any focus area, we do family ministry now, but the focus of our family ministry is helping families pass faith to the next generation. And one of the things that we see a lot in Christian families is we see a lot of families celebrating too soon when it comes to their kids' faith. What I mean by that is that they have a child who's a junior or senior in high school going to youth group, um, uh, doing church stuff, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and they graduate from high school, and the parent's like, yes, my kid has received the faith and is now walking as a Christian. Those folks are celebrating too soon because tons of kids who grew up in Christian homes go off to college and leave the faith. Others leave the faith in their 20s. Raise your hand if you have some friends you grew up with who aren't walking with God anymore. Okay, so the million-dollar question is, why? Like, and what, what anchor wasn't in place? Here you are serving at Go Lake. Oh, by the way, well, how do I know when to celebrate? For, for me, when my children are raising my grandchildren to follow Jesus, that's when I'm celebrating. I know then that they have taken the baton of faith and it is theirs and they are now running with it in their generation. Okay, but for your friends maybe that you knew in youth group uh, or you knew from home or, or friends that you've been in college with who seem to start off well spiritually, and now are struggling spiritually, what anchor was not in place? What changed in their life? I've got your theme verse up on the screen, right? Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. In the very next verse is a big time warning. Okay, it's the, it's the spiritual battle verse that's connected with this one. All right, let your roots grow down, let your lives be built, you're going to go strong in the truth. Now warning, next verse, see to it that no one takes you captive. Oh, sorry, should we re, uh, re, reconnect? Here we go, let's try that. Waiting for connection. Oh, that's your gizmo, that's not me. I blame you. All right, how did the Apostle Paul do it without PowerPoint? You know, it's unbelievable. Okay, uh, I'm going to read it to you. See to it, listen carefully. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. Great. Why is this so important? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So what are some things we take away? Number one, people and demons are going to try to take you captive. So be alert. They're going to try to take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Something that's hollow looks good on the outside but it's empty on the inside. Something that's deceptive looks right on the outside, but after you get into it, you find out that it's a lie. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to give you some uh, warnings today of some of the hollow and deceptive philosophies that the demons in the world are using right now. Again, so the, uh, the conversation I'm going to have with you is going to kind of stir the pot 
You're going to be walking out of here, well, yeah, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? That's exactly what, what I want. I'm going to let a lot of worms out of the can, and I'm not going to try to put them back in. We're just going to let them crawl around the walls, then I'm going to close in prayer, and, and you all get to process this uh, with each other and, uh, and pray about this and take things to God's word. So if the demons in the world are going to take you captive, the first thing that's going to have to happen is that they're going to have to disconnect you from the Bible. They're going to have to disconnect you from your faith in God's word. Anybody know the very first words of Satan recorded in the Bible? Very first thing that Satan says to Eve. Anybody know his first words? Yeah, did God really say? In other words, did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit from that tree? The first thing that Satan's got to do is disconnect Eve from what God had said. Now, when I was your age, I had a very significant, are we, oh, look at you. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. All right, thank you. When I was your age, I had a very significant vulnerability in my faith. I understood and believed that the Bible was true. I believed it was inerrant. I believed it was God's word. But I did not understand that the Bible was enough, that it was sufficient. And this is this doctrine I want to press in for you this morning, that the Bible's not only true, it's enough. It's enough for every matter of faith and practice. Let me ask you a few opinion questions here. Raise your hand if you agree. Raise your hand if you believe that the Bible is God's word. Put your hand up for me, okay? Raise your hand if, the Bible, if you believe the Bible's true in everything it intends to say. Okay, now when I say, what do you mean everything it intends to say? Psalm 91 says God will cover you with his feathers. Therefore, the Bible says God's a bird. No, okay? The, the, the writer of Psalms is not intending to say God has feathers. The writer is intending to use an analogy. Does that make sense? And it is true that God protects us. Okay, so um, you, you say, okay, Rob, yeah, the Bible is God's word. The Bible's true. It's true in all it intends to say. Raise your hand if you're willing to submit your thoughts and opinions on every subject to what it says. And raise your hand if you're willing to do what it says, even if you don't want to do it. Okay, let's review. You say, is the Bible God's word? Oh, yes, Rob, Bible's God's word. Is it true? Oh, absolutely true. Are you willing to submit your thoughts and opinions on every subject to what it says? <laughs> That's asking a lot. And are you willing to do what it says, even if you don't want to? Now, on that last one, we're not talking about willful disobedience. Willful disobedience is when the Bible says A, you say, I don't want to do A, I'm going to do B. Raise your hand if you're personally familiar with willful disobedience. Okay, you all ought to be raising your hands. That's not what we're talking about. A person who's willfully disobedient does not have a problem with the authority of the Bible. They just are disobeying it. They know what God says. They say, but I'm just not doing that. What I'm talking about, and you've already heard this from a lot of your friends, is, you know, hey, I know the Bible says that, you know, like sex is for like one man, one woman marriage and stuff like that. But the Bible's written like 2,000 years ago, and it really needs, it hasn't been updated you know, like in a while. And so things have changed. And, and so like, I really believe Jesus, but just like that part of the Bible, like I just don't think is really true. See that now, we're like Eve. We've been unhooked and unhitched from God's word. So you'll have friends who say, I love Jesus, but I don't completely believe the Bible. How many of you heard of uh, uh, postmodernism? 
postmodernism. Okay, in some of your philosophy classes, and maybe you've talked about it here as staff at Gull Lake. So postmodernism is this philosophy that the way you determine what is true, right, and good is with your feelings and with your own experience. How will you determine what's right for you? Well, I will determine, right? You determine what's right for you. I determine what's right for me. And Christians say, oh my goodness, this postmodern worldview, this is, this is terrible. You know, everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And, and the implication is, well, we, this postmodern worldview is bad. Obviously, therefore, the modern worldview is good. Postmodern bad, modern good. Well, in the modern worldview, through the scientific revolution, the final arbiter for what's true, right, and good is my brain. It's my reason. Now, hear me on this. The Christian worldview is not postmodern. The Christian worldview is not modern. The Christian worldview is pre-modern. Pre-modern. Doesn't that sound horrible? It sounds like cave people, doesn't it? To say that, well, I'm actually a pre-modern thinker, right? Uh, because here's what the Christian says. The Christian says that my feelings are not trustworthy. Even my rationality is not trustworthy. I've been stained by sin through and through. I need truth from God. I need revelation from God. And I'm going to submit my feelings and I'm going to submit my thoughts to what God says. Let me tell you a story. I, uh, uh, Captain Crunch and I have a favorite pizza place back at home, uh, Capri Pizza, and they sell slices there. So you go in for lunch, you get a slice and a Coke. So I go in for lunch, I ask for my slice of pepperoni and my Coke. They hand me my, my Coke, I'm kind of waiting for my pizza. I take a sip of the drink, and it is just horrible. Like the machine, the mix in the machine is whacked out. So I say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I think the, the mix in the pot machine's messed up. So can I, let me have a diet. So they say, oh, we're so sorry. I say, no, no problem, no big deal. So they give me a diet, and I take a sip of that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Forgive me, but this is, this is just really, really bad. Um, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, just, just, I'll have a can. Give me a can of Coke from the case, no problem. So I get my can, I go out into my car, I sit down, I open up my slice, take a drink of my can of pop. I'm like, oh, horrible. This just tastes disgusting. And I'm like, okay something that's not right what is going on well I was getting ready to leave for a mission trip for Bolivia and I had started taking anti-altitude medicine uh, and so I google side effects of this particular medicine the first thing it says it makes pop taste like metal all right so was anything wrong with the machine was anything wrong with the can what was wrong me Right, I was wrong. And of course, they're calling the service people. I should have gone back in and said, you know, I'm really sorry, you know, but I was too embarrassed, right? Because they, they feel bad. They're trying to fix this thing, okay? So, so it's a, it was just a, a reminder to me. See, we think, right, that, that we've got it all together and whatever we think and whatever we feel, well, that must be right. But here was this situation where I was the one that was off base. Let me, I wanna, I'm gonna power walk my way through some examples for you of what I mean when I say the Bible is enough, not just true, but enough for every matter of faith and practice, okay? Let's say you have a new Christian friend and your new Christian friend comes to you and says, um, you've been telling me that God is a personal God. Is that true? You've been telling me that God wants me to worship him in a personal way. Is that true? Okay, so what I've been doing is I go up on this hill next to my house and I make this fire and like I jump in the fire and I scrape myself with rocks and I, I tell God how much I love him and it makes me feel really close to him. What would you say to your new Christian friend? 
You'd be like, uh, okay, time out. I was really doing good with you. God is a personal God. That's the truth of the Bible. God wants us to worship him. That's God's will in the Bible. But not only does God say worship me, he gives us methodology. He gives us sufficient practices. So your friend says, Am I, you're saying I'm worshiping God wrongly? Yes, you are. Those are not the methods that God has given us to worship him. So your friend says, oh, okay, so I'm not supposed to jump in the fire and cut myself with rocks. What should I do to worship God then? What should I do to worship God properly? Not a trick question. Hmm? Sing? Serve? Pray? Where did you get your little list there? We could keep going, but where did those three things come from? The Bible. And the Bible alone. You see that? There are other demons except worship in other ways. You can jump in the fire and worship demons. You can throw children in the fire and worship demons. God says, here's specific ways that I am to be worshipped. And the Bible is not only true when it comes to how we worship God, but it's enough. You know, it's interesting. There's a few scriptures that say, don't add to my words, right? God says, don't, right, or, or don't take away from my words. But eight times in the Bible, God says, don't add to what I've written. Don't add to what I've written. Well, what does that mean? It means it's enough. It's fully sufficient. Let me give you another uh, example. I'm gonna give you all sorts of different examples. Some of these are gonna stir the pot more than others. Let's imagine um, a team of women is gathering for their women's ministry planning meeting, okay? It's uh, summertime. They're going to gather for women's ministry planning for the next school year. And in the middle of their meeting, the, the lights go out, the earth shakes, the voice of God audibly speaks in the room, and the women hear God say, the older women shall train the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be pure, to be keepers at home, not gossip, not drink too much, so that the word of God will not be reviled. And the lights go back on and the women sit back down. Would that change the direction of their planning meeting? You're like, you're like whoa, if, if God spoke to us and, and told us about things we had to do in our women's ministry, my goodness, well, that, that would change everything. Now, you're like, well, what was that little thing you just said? Well, that's actually Titus 2, 5. That is God speaking about the nature of women's ministry in the church. What does women's ministry have to do according to God? It's got to be multi-generational. Older women training younger women. It's got to be focused on the home. What are we going to train women to do? Love their husbands, love their children. You're like, oh, wait a second. You're saying that the Bible says that a woman's primary ministry is her home? Absolutely. Titus chapter 1 just got done saying that a man's primary ministry is his home. A man's first ministry is his family, Titus chapter 1. A woman's first ministry is her family, Titus chapter 2. Okay, But I, I was in a meeting in a church meeting. And we, we were talking about women's ministry for the next year. And the, we were wrestling with, should Titus chapter 2 verse 5 be a governing passage for our women's ministry philosophy? Half the group thought yes, half the group thought no. Of course, I was in the group at that point that said, oh yeah, I think it pretty much should. Here's God speaking and saying, here's at the heart of what women's ministry needs to be in the local church. But you see, folks, listen, this is what I didn't have. I thought that the Bible was for doctrine. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is heaven? What is hell? I didn't know that the Bible spoke to everything that matters. 
and that God spoke to real life, practical life, your money, your sexuality, your worship, your ministry, that God speaks to all these things. Let me uh, uh, keep stirring the pot here a little bit. Oh, the other side. The other side says that, well, Titus 2.5 is, of course, valuable and helpful, and there are some things there that we could um, you know, glean from, and we certainly shouldn't ignore it, but, but it doesn't need to be the bedrock of how we think about women's ministry. No, oh, no, no, no. Did they have a different verse? No, they did not have a different verse, no. But it was, and believe me, I, I understood this because this is the way I used to think. Again, the Bible's for who is God, who is Jesus, what is heaven, what is hell, how are we saved? Not how should we do women's ministry? How should we worship God? How should we handle our money? How should we handle our sexuality? That the Bible is true and enough for every matter of faith and practice. The Bible will tell you everything important about everything important. It'll tell you everything you need to know about everything you need to know. Let me give you another example here. Um, the, the Bible's sufficient for science. The Bible's sufficient for science. And I want to give you a really clear uh, clarification here. When I say the Bible's sufficient, I don't mean the Bible's exhaustive. Exhaustive means it says everything there is to say, right? So when I say sufficient for science, there's a lot of science not in the Bible, right? Uh, astrophysics is probably not in the Bible. Microbiology probably not in the, the Bible. But the Bible tells us everything we need to know to do science properly. What do you absolutely need to know to do science properly? Number one, that God created the world. That we're not here by random chance. That science is worth studying. We're going to find order rather than chaos because an ordered God intentionally created it. So that's one thing you've got to know for sure. You also have to know that human beings are not animals. You see, God created plants, God created animals, God created people. In your biology book, people are in the animal kingdom. That's wrong. Now, I, okay, I understand that I'm a mammal. I get that, right, with the hair and the skin and all that. Like, if you want to classify us strictly biologically, that's fine. But I'm not an animal. The Bible says very clearly I'm not an animal. The animals are a totally separate category from me. And if you don't start with that as a Christian, and you lump human beings in with animals you've already started to be taken captive to hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. And pretty soon you're working on saving the, the swamp newt more than saving the human babies. And this is exactly what's happening, particularly in your generation. Here's another thing you absolutely have to know. Uh, we can, the, the Bible says that everything reproduces after its kind so the dogs don't become cats and the cats don't become fish and the ants don't become people. And here is one. If, you, if there's one of these practical ones that you latch hold of today and either take to heart or want to pursue more, I hope this one's it. You have to know that the Bible teaches that there's only one race. There's only one race of people. Human. It's the only kind of people God made. Human people. And some of us have lighter skin and darker skin. Some of us have bigger noses and smaller noses. Some of us have different body shapes and all those sorts of things. Now we come from different cultures and different languages. But the whole concept of multiple races is an evolutionary concept. It is not a biblical concept. And so many Christians begin their conversation with racial issues by accepting the evolutionary starting point of multiple races. As soon as you accept the evolutionary starting point of multiple races, you're going to have race wars. 
The Christian starts with the truth that there is one race, human, and we all are made in the image of God. We all share equal value, worth, and dignity. See, I could show you a biology book from the 1920s, an evolutionary biology book, where they show the evolution of man. And you see uh, different apes in different parts of the world evolved in different ways. And in this biology book, the uh, most evolved human was the, Europe, the white European because they were the least ape-like. And the least evolved person was the African who was the most ape-like. What an evil, wicked, horrible thing. And completely contrary to what the Bible teaches us. That God created a man and a woman. He created one human race. By the way, the definition of the word race means a single group of people back to one parent. That's what race means. You can go look that up, okay? Um, but that's what the word race means. And it's, so as soon as you embrace this uh, uh, evolutionary mindset, you're going to have race wars. This is what Hitler believed, right? When he tried to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth, he thought that he was doing the world a favor. He's weeding out the less evolved. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, she put her abortion mills disproportionately in black and brown neighborhoods. Why? To purify the human race, to purify the genetic code. Evil, sick, horrible, wrong. Now, I'm not going to give up my starting point that God made only one race of people. And if I'm talking with somebody and they think that there's multiple races, that we've all evolved from different places, look, I can have a respectful conversation with you, but I guarantee you we're not going to end up in the same place that every person deserves equal value, worth, and dignity. Because if you start with multiple races, you get race wars. All right, sufficient for sexuality. God made two genders, two sexes, male and female. God made marriage for one man and one woman. And you see what's happening right now in our culture is that the Christian is not just being told to tolerate homosexuality and transgenderism, and now it's in, in polyamory, which is uh, multiple people uh, engaged in intimacy. The big press right now is for adult child sexuality. That's what's coming next. As long as the adult wants it and the child wants it, how could that be wrong? Because that's what we're wired up to do. Um, we're not being asked to just tolerate that. We're asked, being asked to celebrate that. Let me show you something. Uh, I, I know that these issues of sexuality are extremely sensitive, and I don't mean to make light of it, but I want to give you an illustration to show you how God's creation of men and women, two genders, two sexes, is, is built in. It's just absolutely unavoidable. Here on Amazon is a shirt. Uh, it's an LGBT shirt. It says, I'm pantastic, okay, which means uh, I'm sexually, I'm whatever I want to be today. So if you want to get this, the first thing you have to click is your fit type. Are you a man or a woman? And then after you click your fit type, then you can go buy the shirt. My point is, okay, again, I understand it's sensitive. My point is that it's, it's in God's creation of men and women, absolutely inescapable. Even if you want to buy the fantastic shirt, you then have to choose um, whether you're a man or a woman based on how they're going to, uh, how they're going to cut the shirt. You know, on this um, issue of sexuality, the, the world accuses Christians of being very horrible on this. 
the world accuses us of, of saying, well, you Christians are horrible because you teach that, that some people are wired up good, in other words, like heterosexually, and other people are wired up bad, uh, homosexually. Uh, and, and just to, you know, because these uh, folks that are struggling with homosexual feelings, they've had these feelings since they were young, and you're just horrible people for saying that some people are wired up good and some people are wired up bad. And my response to that is, well, that's not what Christians teach. We don't teach some people are wired up good and wired up bad. We teach all people are wired up bad. All of us. From the time that any of us started to get sexually minded and hormones kick in and puberty and stuff like that. All right, I'll, let me just be blunt with you. Okay, so let's say I'm a 13, 14-year-old boy, right? Hormones kicking in. My wiring says to be sexual with as many of these girls as possible. That was my wiring. Is my wiring good or bad? Bad. Bad wiring. Every one of us has bad wiring. We're all wired up for sexual sin. So the Christian takes the wiring to God and says, God, I am so messed up. My lust is so messed up. My sexual thoughts are so messed up. God, I need you to rewire me. Okay, so as a married man, right, God, would you take all of my uh, sexual desires and have them be completely for my wife. Change my wiring so that every ounce of sexual desire I have is for her. Does this make sense? All right, so just helping you navigate some of this stuff. Um, one last one, and in this, uh, it's 9.14. I'm supposed to be done uh, at 9.15. So I'm just gonna throw this one out there. A huge area where I see your friends right now being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy is they're failing to apply the Bible to principles of government, failing to apply the Bible to principles of government. They are being taken in by Marxist theology, communist theology, socialist theology, all of which require faith in the government rather than faith in God. So just listen, for some of you are like, okay, hold on, time out, what are you talking about? It, does, does Satan use false scientific philosophy to rob faith from Christians? Does he use false sexual philosophy to rob faith from Christians? He also uses false political philosophy to rob faith from Christians. So just think about that. Grab me around camp, Rob. What are you talking about? Final comment before I pray here. This, this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, if you believe the Bible is not only true, but it's enough for every matter of faith and practice, it's a very dangerous doctrine. It's dangerous to your pride, Okay, because you're always going to have to be submitting your thoughts and feelings to God's word. It's going to be dangerous to you. You're not going to be a popular person. It's going to be dangerous to your standing in the world. Okay, it might even be dangerous to your standing in your church. You're going to hold fast to the Bible, even with some of your Christian friends. You may get some mocking for this. If you want to trust God's word over man's word in every area of life, you may have to stand alone. But this is where, listen to the words of Jesus. This is my close here. This is where fruitfulness in the Christian life comes from. This is like the foundation for making a difference in this world for Christ uh, and for his kingdom. Jesus uh, taught in the parable of the soils, like who is the, the fruitful person? And he talks about the person who has 30-fold uh, fruit, 60-fold fruit, 100-fold fruit, like the one who makes a difference, the one who stands, the ones who don't fall away, the ones who don't wither. What does it take to be a man like that? What does it take to be a woman like that? Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, those who have a hundredfold fruit in their life. These are the ones, Jesus says, who hear the word and accept it. Who hear the word and accept it. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I know uh, this morning was a, a, 
a crash course on this stir the pot. I, I'm so passionate about this because I see so many of my young brothers and sisters being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. So many that grew up in churches and grew up in Christian homes who seem to be doing well in high school by the time they're 25, they're far from God. And it started, Lord, uh, because they were taken captive and they hadn't, weren't holding on to your word in every area of life. So I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, uh, humble uh, that we would submit our, our thoughts and our feelings and our perspectives on everything to what you've said in your word so that we can be rooted in you firm in you, found in you, and that we can serve you faithfully. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.